0: A few weeks ago when we were looking at the Word of God, we were talking about the doctrine of assurance. And I want to go back to that this morning and and continue our discussion. I, I feel it's so important for us to know doctrine, to know theology, to understand the great principles of Scripture. And so we've been looking at this matter of how to know you're saved, how to have assurance of salvation and to enjoy that assurance. We talked a little bit about the people who have assurance and don't deserve it. We talked a little bit about the people who don't think anybody should have assurance because they believe you can lose your salvation. And then we talked about eight reasons, at least starting to talk about eight reasons why people lack assurance of salvation. I know, because I've lived through all the years that you're now living through, that at points in our life, in our growth, no matter how involved we are in the work of the Lord, There are doubts about our spiritual condition. There are times when we wonder if we're really saved. What is it that causes that? What is it that gives us doubts? And sometimes those doubts are brief, and sometimes they're fleeting, and sometimes they're now and then, and sometimes they're constant, and sometimes they're depressing, and they run the gamut of all kinds of emotional effects but how can we understand why we lack assurance? How can we get our hands on what causes it? Well, let me just review what I told you last time. The first thing that might cause it is strong preaching. We said that some people lack assurance because they're under strong biblical preaching on God's holy standard. And the more they hear about the holiness and the perfection of God, the more they wonder if they're not too bad to really be considered as saved. The second The thing that causes people to doubt their salvation is they can't accept forgiveness. They have so much guilt about their sin that they can't believe God could really forgive them. And because they struggle with the tyranny of their emotions, they feel they're too bad to be forgiven. And because they're constantly accused by conscience, they're constantly accused by the law of God, they're constantly accused by justice, they lack the assurance of their salvation. And then we suggested to you that one other reason people lack assurance is ignorance. They do not understand the extent and the comprehension of their salvation. They do not understand that it covers all their sins, past, present, and future. They do not realize the fullness of forgiveness in Christ, the totality of the debt being paid in Christ. And so because of an inadequate understanding of the gospel, they lack assurance. That's reviewed. Now let me go to some of the remaining ones that we haven't talked about. Here's one that I am sure has touched a number of you. Some Christians lack assurance because they can't remember the time of their salvation. They can't remember the exact time they were saved. They can't pinpoint some moment somewhere. And so they struggle. Wondering whether they're really saved and maybe they hear these testimonies of sort of cataclysmic transformations, and they don't have any such cataclysmic transformation. I mean, maybe they uh, they hear people talk about drugs and alcohol and sex and crime and you name it and how in a moment of time the Spirit of God swept over them regenerated them and they were dramatically and traumatically transformed They don't have that experience. In fact, they can probably not even remember never believing. It's just uh, very difficult to identify a change, a total transformation, a moment. I remember a guy in our church said to me, he said, All my life I have struggled with whether I'm a Christian he said I always doubt it and I said why he said because I can never identify a moment when I was saved but he said that'll never be the case again and I said why he said because I fixed that last Sunday I said you did what did you do he said I was leaving church in my van driving down Roscoe Boulevard and I was having all those doubts and I said to myself I'm not gonna have any doubts anymore And so I noted in my mind the day and I stopped my van, I pulled it over to the curb, I got out, I went in the back of my van, I took out a stick or some kind of piece of wood and a hammer and I pounded that stick in the grass on somebody's lawn. And I said to God, I'm driving this stake today, this day, and I don't know anything about the past, but I confess Jesus as Lord today, and this is the day of my salvation. And I got in my car, and I wrote it down. And I said, I will never doubt again, because I always know the day. Ridiculous, in one sense, but it does show you his problem. He may think that was the day of his salvation, but he still doesn't know if it was. (laughs) A lot of people struggle with the reality that they can't identify a moment. But that's about as silly as wondering if you're a person because you can't remember your birthday. There are other ways to tell whether you've been born again than remembering the moment. I mean, none of us remember the moment of our birth, but we don't question that we were born. Somebody says, I can't remember praying a prayer. I, I, I can't remember raising my hand. I, I can't remember walking an aisle. I, I don't think I ever signed a card. I don't know when it happened. And particularly this is true of Christians raised in Christian families where you're just around it all the time and you can't identify the moment and you say, well, I, I think I prayed a prayer when I was three and my mother said I was saved and then I, I remember praying it again when I was seven in Sunday school and then I was I kind of messed up when I was in high school and then when I was about 19 I, I prayed it again but I, I don't really know when I was saved. If it's any comfort to you, I'm not sure the moment of my salvation uh, I can't say for sure when I was saved. I, people say to me, have you been a Christian all your life? And my answer is not yet. But as far as looking backwards goes, as I look to the back part of my life, I don't ever remember a time when I didn't believe, and I don't ever remember a time when I rebelled. I mean, I remember a time when I rebelled against my parents and maybe rebelled against my teachers and rebelled against my coaches and whatever like that. But I never rebelled against God. I mean, I never denied God or I always believed in Christ. I always believed the gospel. I always believed the Bible. I always... Uh, Acknowledge Jesus Christ as Savior And so I can't remember a moment in time in the past In which I very clearly passed from death to life And can know that without a shadow of doubt But that's not a reason to lack assurance It is for some people Because they overemphasize the moment And for some of us, to be real honest It was a gradual growing up I believe salvation is an adult Decision. I believe it is an adult event. I believe it happens to people who have reached at least an age of accountability where they understand the sinfulness of sin and the righteousness of God. And they understand the death of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. But I believe that before you get to that point, there are all kinds of little steps that children take toward God. And they're affirming steps, steps of simple faith. At what point you pass from death to life, God knows you may not know because you've progressed through all those little steps of affirming the reality of Christ. Some people doubt because they're uncertain about the moment of their salvation. Let me give you another reason. Some people doubt their salvation because of temptation. Temptation. In other words, they feel the constant pull of their unredeemed flesh. And they wonder if they really have a new nature. We are new creations living in fallen flesh. Your inner man is new, made new. You are a new creation in Christ, but you live incarcerated in unredeemed human flesh. And you're waiting for the redemption of your body when you lose that flesh and you're one whole, holy person. But until that time, there is the pull and the pull and the pull of the flesh. You're tempted to lust with your eyes. You're tempted to desire things that aren't yours. You're tempted to covet. You're tempted to be proud. You're you're tempted to long for the things of the world you feel the pull of the flesh all the time and it's so strong that all you have to do is is see a momentary suggestion in front of your eyes or hear it in your ears and immediately that flesh goes into action and you say with the Apostle Paul in Romans 7 nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh O oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? Sometimes in ancient times when they wanted to punish a murderer, they took the body of the person he had murdered and tied it to his body. And eventually the decaying corpse took his life. And so Paul is saying it's as if I have strapped to me the dead body of my flesh, and it impacts my life. He says, I want to do what's right, Romans 7, but I don't. He says, I don't want to do what's wrong, but I do, and I feel the pull of the flesh. And that's true in all our lives. I get weary of the flesh. I get sick of the flesh. And it pulls and pulls and pulls all the time. And sometimes the very overt temptations come against you, and sometimes very subtle and covert temptations come against you. I was thinking about that in regard to my trip to Russia. When you walk away from a meeting where a lot of people have repented, the flesh says to you, Well, you really did good today. Well, you really you really preached powerfully. Look at all of that response and you just it's sickening. To hear that, and immediately you just ask the Lord to take that away. Those are very subtle, very disturbing temptations that reveal the reality of the flesh. There you are in the middle of ministry, in the middle of doing the thing God has called you to do, and the flesh is there having its little moment. So subtle. Much more subtle than another couple of experiences I had I was thinking about. First night we were asleep in Kiev, I got a phone call. I picked up the phone. It's 2 o'clock in the morning. And I know it's nobody outside the Soviet Union because you can't call in and out of the Soviet Union. And there's a girl on the other end of the phone. And she says hello, and I said hello in some groggy way. and She said, um, I'm 19 years old. I'm very lonely, and I need to come to your room. Oh, And she wasn't looking for a Russian Bible. I said, sorry, bye. And uh, the next night she called again. And then after that I took my phone off the hook. There are some of those kinds of temptations that are not very subtle and... uh, (laughs) I'm not interested But I thought about that that really was no temptation to me but while I was congratulating myself about the fact that my flesh did not respond to that idiocy My flesh was telling me how good a preacher. I was because people were getting saved the flesh just disgusting and when you look always at your flesh, I suppose you could wonder whether you were saved. You know, Thomas Hardy once said he had a friend who could find a manure pile in any meadow. And there are, there, you know, you can go through your life just looking for the manure pile. I mean, you know, you can live that way. You can live that way spiritually. You lose your sense of balance. Here's a helpful suggestion. Instead of always evaluating yourself on the flesh side, evaluate yourself on the other side. Look at yourself on the other side. Test yourself like this. You once lived in sin and loved it. Do you now desire deliverance from it? You were once self-confident and trusted in your own goodness. Do you now see yourself as a sinner before God? You once wanted to hide from God and rebel against His authority. Do you now look up to Him, desiring to know Him and to yield yourself to Him? If you can honestly say yes to these questions, you have repented. And it's not the amount of repentance that counts, it's the fact that you turned from self to God Jesus Christ forgave your sin, gave you a new nature, and that new nature is now revealed in those new impulses. One writer said, strictly speaking, not one of us has ever repented enough. None of us has realized the enormity of our guilt as God sees it. But when we judge ourselves and trust the Savior whom he has provided, we are saved through his merits. As recipients of his loving kindness, repentance will be deepened and continued day by day as we learn more and more of his infinite worth and our own unworthiness. End quote. Part of your Christian growth is an increasing awareness of the presence of the flesh and your unworthiness of the grace of God. So the very fact that your desires are right and your desires are toward God and that you have this continuing revulsion of the flesh is not evidence that you're not saved, it's evidence that you are. Do you see the impulses of the new nature in your life? That's indicative of salvation. Has God's will become your highest joy? Has submission to his lordship become your greatest delight? If so, you are indeed a child of God, no matter how strong the pull of sin might be. Let me give you another reason why people struggle with assurance. And this is very practical. Trials. Some Christians become spiritually unstable because they can't see the hand of God in all their trials. Something goes wrong in their life, and immediately their response is, God doesn't love me. I don't belong to him. He's not my father, and Christ is not my savior, and if I was God's, this would never happen. How could God love me and let me go through this? How could he take my husband? How could he take my wife? How could he take the one I love? How could he take my child? How could he not hear my prayer? How could he not deliver me out of this situation? Where is God when I need him? I must not be his child. He must not love me. He must not care about me. Sometimes people who come out of difficult backgrounds and lived in homes where there was very little love and affirmation have a problem with these kinds of attitudes. But that's just the opposite of truth, understanding. Romans 5 says, Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, and we rejoice in hope in the glory of God. And we also know this, we rejoice in our tribulations. Why? Knowing the tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope that doesn't disappoint. Now follow that track. Trials produce patience, which produces proven character, which produces hope, and hope eliminates doubt. So the very opposite is true. When you have trials in your life, it shouldn't weaken your confidence. It should strengthen your confidence. James says, Count it all joy when you fall into various trials because the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect result. Trials should not make you doubt if you're patient in the trial and see the hand of God in the trial It will do the opposite. It'll make you strong in faith It'll make you strong in faith God will show himself faithful Instead of reacting instantaneously to the difficulty and wondering whether God loves you look for God in your trial Find his hand there. See where he is at work, and you'll find that just the opposite of what you thought, your trial will become the primary way in which God evidences that you belong to him. In fact, let's take chastening. If you're chastened by God, it proves that you're his what? His child. For every son he scourges. That's the father's love. Trials then become the crucible in which assurance is formed It's when I see God's hand taking me through this dark time and I sense his love and his affirmation And when I go through it and I look back and see what he accomplished in it all Then I know I belong to him and he had a perfecting purpose Some people fail to see God in their trials They fail to discern what God is doing in their trials, and so they think it means God doesn't care when it is really the greatest evidence that He does care. He'll be there. Listen to what Paul said. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? That's quite a list. Paul says, what's going to separate you from the love of Christ? Tribulation or trouble? No. How do you know, Paul? I've been in trouble. It didn't separate me. How about distress? No, I've been in distress. Didn't separate me. How about persecution? No, I've been persecuted. Didn't separate me. How about famine? You've ever gone without food? You had not Yep. Yep, been without food. Didn't separate me from the love of Christ. Well, how about nakedness? How about having nothing to wear? Yeah, I've been a night and a day in the deep in the sea. Uh, I've I've been in all of those kinds of difficulties in prison in wretched, stinking, foul garments. Probably had to discard them because of the vermin. Oh, yeah, I've been there. Didn't separate me. How about a sword? Oh, yeah, I've seen those too. Didn't separate me. When Paul says... Who shall separate us from the love of Christ and gives his little list is not speculative. It is personal experience. Hey, none of that separates us. In fact, just the opposite. I went through the tribulation. I went through the distress. I went through the persecution. I went through the famine. I went through the nakedness, the peril, and the sword. And guess what? Christ was still there. And he was still loving me. And he was still meeting my needs. And in him I was more than conqueror. So Paul says, don't let anybody make you doubt your salvation. Because you're going through trials. That's God perfecting you. That's God chastening you. That's God proving himself to you. Let me give you just a couple more reasons why people doubt their salvation. Just briefly. A failure to walk in the Spirit. A failure to walk in the Spirit. I can't tell you how important this is. Paul says, walk in the Spirit, you'll not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Paul says, "Be being filled with the Holy Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord." You see, one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit is to assure the believer. Listen to Romans 8:15. You have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear. You didn't become a Christian to be afraid, no. You have received a spirit of adoption as sons. In other words, God didn't save you to make you fear. He saved you to make you a son. And then he gave you the spirit and he says, By which we cry out, Abba, Father. That's Aramaic for Papa, Daddy. So Paul says in Romans 8, we've been adopted into God's family through salvation in Jesus Christ. We've been given the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit in us makes us call God Papa. Well, what does he mean by that? He means when you're saved... And the Spirit dwells within you. The Spirit assures you that you are the child of God, that you have such intimacy with God and such access to God that not only do you not live in fear and terror, but you are willing to go into the presence of God and even call Him Papa. That's how intimate, that's how endeared you are to God. And the Spirit does that work in your life to say it another way in the next verse Romans 8:16 Paul says this the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of god And if children heirs, also heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. The Holy Spirit bears witness. The Holy Spirit is the Arabon, the earnest of our future inheritance. That means engagement ring, down payment, first installment. You receive the Spirit, that's God's guarantee he's going to marry you to his son. You receive the Spirit, that's God's guarantee he's going to give you the full inheritance. You receive the Spirit, the Spirit bears witness with your spirit that you belong to God. How does he do that? How does the Holy Spirit do it? Does he whisper in your ear, You're a Christian, you're a Christian, you're a Christian. No. No. He doesn't say anything to you. How does he do that? How does he bear witness? Number one, he bears witness through salvation. In other words, John four thirteen. By this we know that we abide in him, first John four, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have beheld and bear witness that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. How did we know that? Because the Spirit showed that to us. When you became saved, it was the witness of the Spirit to the Son. It was the Spirit convicting you of sin. It was the Spirit exalting Christ. It was the Spirit energizing the gospel. So the first way the Spirit witnesses to your salvation is by saving you. If you recognize your sinfulness and recognized the perfection of Jesus Christ and his person and work, recognized your need to come to Christ and came to Christ and prayed and confessed him as Lord and Savior, received him into your life, the Spirit was doing that. That was his first witness that you're a child of God. The second way he witnesses is by illuminating Scripture. 1 Corinthians 2 says, The things that the eye has not seen and the ear has not heard and the things that have not even entered the heart of man are revealed to us by His Spirit. So the Spirit witnesses by the clarity with which we saw the gospel and believed. The Spirit witnesses by opening the Scripture and illuminating it and making it live before our very eyes and hearts. Another way the Spirit witnesses is by drawing us into fellowship with God through prayer. The fact that you pray is the witness of the Spirit because He is in you crying, Abba, Father, Galatians 4, 6, also in Romans eight fifteen, as we noted. The Spirit produces prayer. The Spirit produces praise. The Spirit produces worship, drawing you to God, pulling you. So you want to sing songs like we sang this morning. You want to pray like we prayed this morning. You want to praise God. That's the Spirit. And that's how he witnesses with you, that you belong to God. Unbelievers don't have those impulses, those desires. And then one more way in which he bears witness, he produces in you his fruit. Love, joy, peace, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. He produces those attitudes in you. So it's not a little voice in your head. The Spirit witnesses that you're a true believer, one, by causing you to believe in Christ, Two, by illuminating the Word of God so that it comes to life in your life. Three, by drawing you into intimacy with God through prayer and praise and worship. And four, by producing in you the fruit of the Spirit, proper attitudes. That's the Spirit's witness. But if you don't walk in the Spirit, and if you're not filled with the Spirit... If you quench the Spirit and grieve the Spirit, you will short-circuit those ministries. You will forget that you've been forgiven of your sin. The Scripture will become blank to you. You will have no heart for prayer and praise and worship, and you will see none of the fruit of the Spirit, and you will literally cut off the witness of the Spirit. Some people lack assurance because they're not walking in the Spirit. And while the Spirit is eager to give them that assurance, they've cut it off. And then, one last reason, which overlaps much of the other things we've said, is disobedience. And this would be the most obvious one. The reason that people lack assurance is disobedience. Hebrews 10.22 strongly says, Let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. And if you want that full assurance, you have your heart sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and your body washed with pure water. Purity and assurance go together. Listen to this. High degrees of assurance cannot be enjoyed by those who persist in low levels of obedience. To live in sin is to live in doubt. These are the reasons people doubt. And I want you to listen in closing to the testimony of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. I'm quoting from what he wrote. Whenever I feel I have sinned and desire to overcome that sin for the future, the devil at the same time comes to me and whispers, how can you be a pardoned person and accepted with God while you still sin in this way? If I listen to this, I drop into despondency. And if I continued in that state, I would fall into despair and commit sin more frequently than before. But God's grace comes in and says to my soul, You have sinned, but did not Christ come to save sinners? You are not saved because you are righteous, for Christ died for the ungodly. And my faith says, Though I have sinned, I have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And though I am guilty, yet by grace I am saved and I am a child of God still. And what then? Why Wrote Spurgeon, the tears begin to flow, and I say, How could I ever sin against my God who has been so good to me? Now I will overcome this sin, and I get strong to fight with sin through the conviction that I am God's child. End quote. Sin creates doubt. Here's a practical way of dealing with sin. Can I help you with this one? Practical way? Get this. Deal with a major sin in your life. And you will notice that all the rest will follow along. Deal with a major sin in your life. And all the rest will follow along. It's like when the general is killed, the troops will scatter. Don't mess with the little ones deal with the big one Slay the sin that finds itself most compelling in your life Slay the sin that is most familiar Slay the favorite pet sin and watch the troops scatter There's no reason to doubt if you're truly saved Unless you fail to live in obedience and walk in the Spirit. And then I'll promise you you'll doubt.